Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Rich. Hey, friends. And Kadeo. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about the Democratic Party, and specifically the Democratic Party's relationship with the working class. It has long you know, been presented and posed as you know, a party of and for the people, but is that really the case? And if not, why isn't it? case. And we hope to explore that from the beginnings until today, hopefully. So we're going to start off. Uh, Rich, you've read up on the origins of the Democratic Party and want to talk on that. So I think what drew us to this topic is kind of a a question that's been haunting the left uh, in the United States for as long as there's been a left in the United States. Like, why is there no socialist party in the United States? We can look across the ocean to any European country or any uh, basically any non-American country, frankly, and there's you know a, a labor party or a social democratic party or a socialist party. And we can certainly look at those parties and see a lot of the same flaws of the Democratic Party now. But the important point is uh, these are parties that explicitly draw on working class constituencies as the elemental component of their coalition. They are legitimately of the working class. Right. Whereas the Democratic Party, uh, just by kind of a, a quirk of historical contingency emerged as a mass political party before you see uh, the broader proletarianization of uh, the American working class. So when the, the Democratic Party emerges, we'll say in the 1830s for the sake of argument, you know, we can push it back to Jefferson if we want, but I'm talking about a mass organized political party. So I'm talking about the Jacksonian democracy. The working class in the United States, such, such as it existed, was still primarily art- artisans working in their own shops. You know, there, you see the beginnings of factory labor, but it's, you know, there's not a conscious working class quite yet. Uh, the majority of its of its base at this point are uh, actually, you know, yeoman farmers, you know, men, exclusively men who own their own land, and importantly, southern slave owners. It's slave owners that are basically the money men and the ideas men and the power sources of the Democratic Party. And so you see them dominate American politics right through the Civil War with this interesting coalition of urban workers uh, who provide the votes, and then southern slave owners who provide the money and the power and you know, the ideas that drive it. And the main idea that's driving the Democratic Party to this point is white supremacy. That's what binds the urban working class in the United States. That's what binds yeoman farmers in the United States to southern slave owners is whiteness itself. And it's the Democratic Party that leads the southern states, the Confederacy, into secession and into the Civil War. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the the election in 1860 is uh, the Democratic Party is split effectively between uh, a slave owner, you know, it splits along, you know, the coalition fragments. There's a northern section that does represent the working class and the farmers, and then a southern section that m- primarily represents the slave owners. After Lincoln wins in 1860, uh, the split in the Democratic Party presages the secession crisis, and then, you know, the, the ultimate uh, declaration of independence on the part of the Confederacy. The practical effect of that is that the Democratic Party becomes kind of a null factor in American politics for the next generation. The Republicans dominate uh, American politics right up until really the Woodrow Wilson administration in the in the, the early 20th century. On, on a national scale. On a national scale. But you see the Democrats, uh, after the end of Reconstruction, begin to reassert their power in their old base in the South uh, and to a lesser extent in you know among the, the urban working classes. So this is the area of, famously of Tammany Hall in New York City. Uh, the great Democratic machine is infamously corrupt. Uh, you know, the buildings that cost millions of dollars when they should have cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, that kind of, you know, easy kind of urban corruption uh, elsewhere. But, you know, broadly speaking, that's that's the, the limit. So this period of, of kind of two party or one party domination, you know, you have a majority party in the Republicans, minority party, the Democrats is going on against the backdrop of, of course, the Gilded Age. This is a period where 
both parties are fostering corporate control, uh, industrial control of uh, the economy, of politics and everything. Uh, both parties are becoming increasingly reliant on exclusively uh, the input of money from the very upper tiers of society. Does this sound familiar? It does, yes. It does, okay. It's always funny that it's called the Gilded Age because I just think of all the stuff that was going on, like all the union fights that went on in that time and afterwards. And like, um, it's a time when, like, on the labor side of things, like, mil- I think it's when it's the country's almost at its most militant in terms of labor, which is a good thing. Like, it's, well, not a good thing in the response that it gets, but it's like unions are starting to really become a thing in the U.S., whereas, you know, like, it's the growth of the concept of the union and all of this stuff appearing. The idea was around before, but, like, in the late 1800s is when unions start to become a big thing, both as a, as a philosophic concept and as an actual thing. Yeah, yeah I think it's great you point that out because this is a real moment of kind of potential, let's say. You see a lot of very creative thinking about how workers should be organizing themselves. Uh, the Democrats haven't really started addressing in a meaningful way this new industrial working class. You know, by and large, they're immigrants, they're first generation. You know, these are people, first generation immigrants, I should say, uh, people pushed off their farms or pushed out of their workshops. So the first generation of people who are working at kind of industrial scale labor. But the Democrats don't really know what to do with this population. They haven't you know, devised a strategy uh, for incorporating them yet. So like Kadeo pointed out rightly, they're organizing themselves into unions, uh, into cooperative societies, into secret larger societies, movement, larger movements outside of politics uh, in this period. Well, actually, I, I want to make a distinction there because you say outside of politics, but it's not really. I mean, the things that go on in a workplace are political. Sure. The sort of battles between, for the eight-hour day that we've talked about on this show, uh, that was, what, 1884, the Haymarket Affair? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll clarify. Outside of, like, state politics or, you know, yeah. high politics, right. whatever you want to call it. That we're talking about politics here. We're specifically talking about the idea of the government and political action. Right. Electoral politics. Sure, electoral politics. Uh, politics absolutely. Governance. So, yeah, they're, they're creating movements sort of outside, let's say, the legitimate structure, mm-hmm. legitimized structures of politics as a direct challenge to them. Uh, so one of the more interesting of uh, these sort of counter hegemonic forces that emerges uh, in this Gilded Age is a group uh, that forms in Texas uh, and then spreads throughout the South and the Midwest, and that's the Farmers Alliance. We talk a lot about labor on this show. We talk a lot about unions. We don't talk a lot about farmers organizing themselves. And this is an interesting moment where really farmers were the ones taking the lead uh, in terms of both organizing a movement at its peak. Uh, the Farmers Alliance had between two and three million members. And in terms of the ideas uh, driving political discussion in the United States broadly at this time. And this is a time when the West is sparsely populated. It's only farmers, basically. Maybe you have some miners, but the industrial unions of the East are not out West. Yeah, you, you don't see, uh, I mean, on the railroads, you start to see, or, you know, in this period, you know, large uh, challenges to capital. But uh, for the most part in the United States, most people are still farmers. Most people are still, generally speaking, working on small farms that they own themselves. That's becoming less and less true in this period. Uh, a lot of the, the members of the Farmers Alliance are tenant farmers, which is you know a big part of their critique. So to understand sort of the the draw of the Farmers Alliance in this period, you know, just to set the context, one the most important thing, cotton, which was king, is no longer king. Cotton never recovers from the Civil War uh, for a number of reasons. One of the most obvious is that slavery ends. Mm-hmm. You know, so even with you know slavery by another name and kind of sharecropping, so much of the South gets burned down. So much of the yeah, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, so much of the South is just you know Sherman's march through Georgia absolutely devastates you know major cotton lands. Slaves aren't working at the kind of productive uh, scale Southerners were able to coerce from them. Uh, white Southerners, excuse me, were able to coerce from them uh, before the war. And significantly as well, the British Empire found alternate sources of cotton. They started establishing cotton plantations in Egypt and India. So, you know, the, the monopolistic kind of level prices southern cotton owners were able to get before the war were no longer possible. Uh, so everyone uh, in the South broadly was struggling with readjusting to this monoculture cotton crop. And the only thing they wouldn't do is 
stop growing cotton. You know, they they were this all they could, all they knew how to do and all they wanted to We've do. We've tried nothing, and we're all out of ideas. <laughs> yeah. So, a major problem with growing a monocrop like cotton, let's say, there's no way to sort of temper out production. It's not like an industrial uh, operation where every day you predictably produce, I don't know, 10 tons of steel or whatever the factory scale is capable of. You produce one crop of cotton and you harvest it once a year. So that involves a lot of uh, things you need to do as a farmer in order to get yourself through the parts of the year where you're not able to sell cotton. So you need to borrow money to buy seed, you need to borrow money to hire laborers, you need to hire money, borrow money uh, to rent or buy machinery. And all that's very expensive in the United States at this time. Uh, the United States is on the gold standard. That means the money supply is very restricted. That means money is very scarce, expensive. So when you're borrowing money, you're borrowing money at very high interest rates. And then on the other end of things, after you've borrowed money, you've put your crop in, you harvest it. Well, guess who else has harvested their crop? Everyone else. Everyone going cotton in the South. They're all harvesting their cotton more or less at the same time. That means all the cotton is hitting the market at the same time. And of course, what does that do to prices? Whoever's lucky enough to get the first cotton crop in is lucky. You know, he's blessed with cash. Everyone else is more or less screwed. And you'd think the sensible solution would be to just store cotton. But they have those creditors breathing down their necks. No, don't store the cotton. Sell it. I want to get paid back now. So the cotton farmers are put in a bind. Uh, they have to sell their cotton immediately, no matter what the price is. Often they find themselves unable to pay back you know, the full uh, loans from the previous season, so they find themselves caught in a, di- a cycle of debt peonage. And then on top of everything else, who else is taking a cut? The people transporting the cotton to market, the railroads. These are monopolistic concerns at the time. Uh, usually you only have access to one railroad. They can charge whatever rates they want. And so a big part of, big part of your crop's getting skimmed off the top from the railroads, you know, from all the middlemen, skimmers along the way, and then, of course, uh, paying back uh, your loans from the start of the season. So that brings us to the Farmers Alliance. Farmers Alliance kind of comes up with a response to this. It's that farmers should cooperate. Mm-hmm. They should market their crops cooperatively. They should negotiate prices with railroads cooperatively uh, in working kind of in solidarity together. They cut out the middlemen, establish their own uh, corporate forms and achieve sort of success. Effectively, what you're describing is collective bargaining. Yeah. So the farmers were collective bargaining. That was the idea behind the Farmers Alliance. And they do achieve some success with this. You know, the farmers who participate in the Farmers Alliance and succeed in setting up cooperative markets are able to get better prices and better deals on the train, uh, the train rates, and, you know, uh, able to negotiate better loan rates. But they're still dealing with these structural issues. They're still monopolistic railroads. They're still banks will only give loans usuriously. So in 1892, a group of Farmers Alliance men get together in Omaha, Nebraska, and negotiate uh, the formation of a new political party to challenge the Democrats and the Republicans to represent the farmers and the urban working class. And they issue what's called the the Omaha Platform. It's a kind of famous uh, waypoint in American radical history. So some of these are you know, pretty familiar kind of common sense stuff. They advocate for progressive income tax, uh, direct election of senators, civil service reform, you know, kind of general good government. These are all stuff you'll see actually enacted in the next generation in the, the Wilson administration. Uh, but some of it's actually quite radical even now. They call for the abolition of all banks. They call for uh, government ownership of all utilities, railroads, telegraph, telephone. You know, all these things would be great now as in 1892. But their most interesting, and from my perspective, the most creative proposal for transforming American economic life was a so-called sub-treasury plan. This I haven't heard about before. So, so one, of their, one of their great thinkers, and this was a really impressively intellectual movement, you know, one of the things Farmers Alliance uh, people did was establish libraries in their towns. One of their thinkers, this man named Charles McCune, looked at that idea that All this cotton's coming to market at the same time. What can we do about that? He advocated the United States government should build silos or warehouses in every community, allow farmers to deposit their cotton there, and in exchange for that cotton, they would receive 
uh, effectively government scrip worth 80% of the value of the cotton or whatever crop. You know, we're also talking wheat or corn in the Midwest or you know, possibilities here. So it's an alternative to the boom and bust cycles that Ex- Exactly. It, it's a way of avoiding the boom and bust cycle. It's a way of, you know, spreading out the release of the crops over the year. Uh, so, you know, you can keep prices that are relatively high, relatively stable, predictable amount, you know, over the course of the year rather than seeing the annual crash when everything comes to market. Much like, you know, industrial workers would be used to a steady wage. Right. Kind of like that. Yeah. And then just as significantly, the issuing of the money. This was the big kind of radical notion of the sub-treasury was that you would base your actual production or the government would give you money based on your actual production of the crop. So it wouldn't be based necessarily on market values as much as it had been or, you know, you know, so supply and demand. the buyer would be the government. The buyer would be the government. The government would then disperse, um, disperse the crops and issue money in return. So at one hand, you're getting rid of the middlemen. You're getting rid of the kind of loan sharks who are preying on these farmers. And you're also expanding the money supply. You're making money affordable. You're making money more available. You're giving farmers access to uh, money in a way they wouldn't have had before, you know, assuming this sub treasury plan, which, you know, spoiler did not get adopted, uh, had been adopted. So there's some, there's so many more radical kind of directions this could have gone. And imagine like a sub treasury for uh, an industrial center and you know depositing your productivity and getting a wage or you know payment based on that not having it be based on power relationships between you and your bosses unfortunately the populists uh, were not able to make that case uh to the working class you know there's never been a farmer workers alliance that's had any kind of sustainable traction in the united states and why is it that the populists struggled and couldn't get over the hump so this is kind of the one of the famous betrayals, I guess, or letdowns, maybe, if you're being more charitable in, in American history, is the Populist Party, they're not the first third party in the United States, but they are one of the most successful ones. Mm-hmm. They're either directly challenging Democrats or Republicans, or they're cooperating with them, depending on local context. Just, for example, in the South, which was dominated by Democrats, they, they would often uh, team up with Republicans, what would be called a fusionist tickets yeah in this in the south uh in north carolina in particular you see a very successful populist republican fusion government that's only overthrown by uh racial violence and what's effect a coup uh, in 1898 but nationally the populists find themselves much more attuned with uh the democratic party the democratic party has its own problems with the gold standard uh but there's a like a real vicious debate about what should we do about the gold standard uh, that's really hard to understand from modern perspective. It's very arcane. I won't get into the details of it. Thank you. So come 1896, the Democrats and the populists agree with some contention to fuse uh, their tickets to challenge for the office of the presidency. The Democrats nominate this man called William Jennings, named William Jennings Bryan. Uh, his nickname is the Great Commoner. If you know your pop culture, he is uh, the old, fusty, fundamentalist litigator from the Scopes trial and, uh, and Inherit the Wind. Uh, but in 1896, he's still very much a, a vibrant force in American politics. Uh, he's famous as an orator. To the point, Brian doesn't accept the more radical edges of the Omaha platform. The compromise position they take is essentially that Brian will advocate for free silver, allowing for coinage of gold and silver. This will expand the money supply. This will make money cheaper and more affordable for farmers. It's a half measure, but it's better than nothing. This is the argument they make. At the DNC that year, uh, in 1896, William Jennings Bryan gives a famously lusty speech that concludes, having behind us the producing masses of the nation and the world, supported by the commercial interests, the laboring interests, and the toilers everywhere, we will answer their demand for a gold standard by saying to them, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. And then he dramatically spreads his arms out like Christ on the cross. The crowd goes wild. They carry him off the stage. Uh, the Democrats really feel like, all right, we're, we're back. We've done it. And they lose. <laughs> William McKinley wins pretty handily in 1896. That speech ticked a lot of people off. Oh, it was, it was such a great speech, even if I don't care about the gold standard and <laughs> bimetallism. You know, it's really evocative even to this day. Brian runs again in 1900. He loses again. And with Brian's defeat in those two presidential elections, the populists get kind of a whiff of loserdom. 
the movement kind of loses its radical edge. It loses its its steam. It's less radical. Abilene's elements get you know kind of incorporated into basic democratic platform but generally speaking the it's a Democrats spent movement reject the radical parts of their platform exactly it's fair to say it's a it's a co-optation yeah it's arguably the first moment where you see democrats co-opting something radical and making it palatable safe uh for you know elite concerns at least and if this is the case at the national scale, I, I want to get back to something you had touched on in, in the South, which is that the populists were driven out by force, really, sure. often in great violence. Um, you, you had mentioned the uh, Wilmington race riot yes. yeah, of 1898, where populists and Republicans held power until they were forced out in a coup yeah. by Democrats. And um, in one of his one, – a speech that I particularly like um, – but which is perhaps lesser known for a variety of reasons. Uh, Martin Luther King talked about this moment in history and talked about the Southern Democratic response to the threat populists posed to their mm-hmm. hegemony in the South. He says, uh, toward the end of the Reconstruction era, something very significant happened. That is what was known as the populist movement. The leaders of this movement began awakening the poor white masses and the former Negro slaves to the fact that they were being fleeced by the emerging merging bourbon interests. He uses that to what we might call corporate Democrats. Um, Not only that, but they began uniting the Negro and the white masses into a voting block that threatened to drive the bourbon interests from the command posts of political power in the South. To meet this threat, the Southern aristocracy began immediately to engineer the development of a segregated society. I want you to follow me through here because this is very important to see the roots of racism and the denial of the right to vote. And effectively, what King's view of history is that it is, you know, white supremacy that denies the populace and this possibility for a real class-based movement to emerge as powerful in the South. King in this, as in so much else, is wise and, you know, fundamentally correct. One of the more interesting facets of the Farmers Alliance, you know, it was segregated. There was a Farmers Alliance uh, that was organized for white farmers, and there was a Colored Farmers Alliance uh, that was organized for, uh, you know, black farmers. Uh, But in the South, in the 1870s and 1880s, so, you know, as close to the end of the Civil War as we are now from, you know, the Clinton administration, still recent memory, Mm -hmm. they still collaborated. They cooperated. Mm -hmm. Uh, they openly work together in electoral politics, particularly in North Carolina. And there's this image, obviously, of the South being, you know, a segregation from the Civil War through the 60s. But it's segregation returns to the South many decades after the Civil War. Yeah. In, in many ways, Jim Crow is a response to the challenge populism's biracial organizing presented to you know, Southern elite interests. Just as an example, in 1892, there was a general strike in New Orleans, a mm-hmm. city, multiracial city, and the working class was multiracial. And, you know, the city had negotiated, said, you know, we will bring, we will give the white workers what they are asking for as long as we exclude black workers. And the workers did not take that deal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's these fascinating moments of, of possibility and you know, racial harmony. Yeah. Solidarity was something that was possible at this time. Absolutely. So, I mean, you still you still see you hear the word populist kind of thrown around as a, a nasty, uh, you know, pejorative in, in American politics these days. And I, I think there's an interesting distinction between the populism of the People's Party, which is a kind of broad based populism that really attempted to organize all the people, define the people broadly across racial lines. And then there's the kind of narrower populism of the aftermath of uh, the popular party after it had been con- uh, co-opted by the Democrats, where it defines the people in quotes very narrowly to mean the white people. Mm-hmm. And so it's this definition of the white people as the legitimate people, legitimate body politic in the United States that really dictates uh, the next generation of Democratic Party organizing. And we will get into that after this break. Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work? That dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LPFM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. 
Welcome back to Punching Out. Um, we're talking today about the history of the Democratic Party as it relates to the working class. They, the two have a very um, interesting relationship, I think is fair to say. Um, talked in the previous segment about you know the origins of the party is dominated by Southern whites and that poses an obstacle to it ever being a, a party for the working class, I think is fair to say. Oh yeah, like so in this period, you know, the Republicans have more or less cornered corporate money as and corporate and industrial money as you know, the basis of their war chest, but the Democrats are still heavily reliant on southern cotton growers and uh, you know, kind of big uh industrial agriculture as the the basis of their own war chest. So they're still shunting aside everyone who doesn't have money. And um one Democrat who was particularly um I fond of this southern base of his was Woodrow Wilson. He was an avowed segregationist. Yep. He hosted the first movie screening at the White House, Birth of a Nation. Yep, classically. Um, uh, now, he wins re-election in 1916, promising that he will avoid U.S. involvement in World War I. This is already underway in Europe, and it's in many ways the big talking point of the day in the U.S. And I, I just want to back up here, sorry, Ryan, to just point out really that Woodrow Wilson is kind of the perfect embodiment of the way the populists get co-opted. It's the the non-radical parts of their agenda or what he campaigns on originally. Um, and, you know, he said he kept us out of the war. Democrats are, to their credit in this period, the anti-imperialist party. They're opposed to war. Bryan campaigns in 1900 as an anti-imperialist. This is a big part of their appeal. So what Wilson does... Which Next is, is namely getting us into the war. Yeah. He promised he wouldn't. Um, you might have heard about this war. Yeah. It was a, the great one. Um, <laughs> now, Wilson's betrayal, I think it can be said, is um, it's particularly felt hard by the working class who will have to fight this war yeah. and who are its biggest opponents in many ways. Um, the opposition to the war is even after U.S. has declared its involvement, comes from working-class movements, unions, and parties like the Socialist Party, which, unlike its counterparts in Europe, had you know stayed strong in opposing the war. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the one of the great credits to Debs's uh, Socialist Party that, like you said, they were the ones who opposed imperialist war, mm-hmm. and they. I was going to say to the point where it gets them in trouble. Yes. Yeah. Gets where the, you're headed. Their reward for opposing this war is an immediate crackdown by Woodrow Wilson. He, you know, for an anti-war speech in Ohio, Eugene Debs gets thrown into jail. Um, I forget the name of the law passed by Wilson that made all this possible. But there's, I believe it was the Espionage Act. Yeah. 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 There's a whole kind of slew it, of... Yeah, there's a couple. It's a huge crackdown on dissent, and particularly anti-war dissent, which means it's a crackdown on left-wing dissent. Sure. And this was a time when Eugene Debs had gotten, was it 8% or 8 million he votes? Got an, a million votes. A million time. votes, that's right. You know, so they posed, you know, not necessarily a, you know, vital threat to the Democratic Party, but they were a challenger. They were... Their view at the time was that the Democrats and Republicans represented two wings of the same bird and led many working class people in opposing that duopoly. And and Debs, you know, just again to tie it off, comes from this tradition of uh, very populist, producer focused uh, idealization of the worker and the farmer and, you know, people who actually make things and grow things. Uh, as the mainstay of society. And a lot of his ideas uh, as a socialist uh, kind of germinate in the, the, the radical ideas of the populist movement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he was radicalized because he was thrown in uh, When he was originally radicalized, he was in jail for helping with uh, one of the railroads. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. Pullman strike. Yeah, yes. the Pullman strike. I'm sorry. There's, no. there's quite a few during that same time, so sometimes yes. I have trouble telling them apart. The, the railroad strikes were the big ends of the, uh, the Gilded oh, Age. Yeah. <laughs> and... I want to make a distinction here between you have political parties which try to win seats in legislatures and presidencies, you know, to run the uh, reins of power that way. And then you have unions which are doing their politics in the workplace. They're seeking to organize workers and to fight for better wages legally and otherwise. 
Um, and the big union at the time is the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World. Um, its members included Helen Keller and Emma Goldman. Um, and the IWW, I mean, even if uh, left-wingers are historically sort of look askance at the Democratic Party, the IWW was even skeptical of the Socialist Party and of the idea that, you know, elections and voting would accomplish things. They were, they did get along for a while, but there was one particular, around one particular point, they very hardly, or in a very hard way, split from each other. They were friendly, and then it was like, hey, we're going to have to go our separate ways. So the party that is more a representative of the working class than the Democrats is not quite radical enough for some of the people in its time, and it would eventually lead to the Socialist Party's marginalization. As we talked about, uh, Woodrow Wilson is cracking down on party leaders. Uh, Debs is not the only one who is put in jail for his anti-war views and activism. Um, His attorney general is the namesake of the Palmer Raids, which are these real violent uses of government force on not just the Socialist Party, but on the IWW and on left-wing radicals more broadly under flimsy pretenses. And just to be clear, the, the, you know, the crackdown on dissent starts during the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Palmer Raids happened in 1919. After the war. What's happening in 1919? The Russian Revolution is in full string. Mm-hmm. Full string. Full swing. The Russian Revolution is in full swing. Uh, Wilson, Wilson, like the rest of global elites, panic. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they really see this as, as they should have, as an existential threat. Yeah. Uh, and they, crack, they, they continue the crackdown on dissent, but they really start focusing on uh, the socialists, the IWW, workers' movements, generally, broadly speaking. Um, and the instigation for the Palmer Raids was actually a, a series of anarchist bombings. Uh, During the, uh, what's it called, the Red Summer? Yeah, the, so the Red Summer after the war, uh, you know, after World War I, uh, you see a massive outbreak of, of strikes in the United States. You know, workers uh, had been giving a lot of, a lot of protections, wage uh Wage protections, wage increases, labor law—you know—on on, this—on the job protections, and they want to preserve those after the war. They don't want those to be just a wartime expediency. Mm-hmm. Um, so, against that backdrop, uh, this Italian anarchist group led by a man named Luigi Galliani uh, sent a series of bombs to leading government and corporate officials. Uh, didn't successfully kill anyone, uh, but the one they sent to Palmer really irked him, uh, to say the least. The, As you can the, imagine, the direct instigator for the Palmer raids, uh, you know, like Ryan was saying, they start rounding up anyone uh, who had a whiff of being foreign. Mm-hmm. You know, if you weren't born in the United States, uh, it's worth noting there's this anti-immigrant right. tinge to these crackdowns. Absolutely, yeah. You know, targeting Italians in particular, uh, Russians as well. So Emma Goldman was born in the Russian Empire. Uh, even though she'd lived in the United States at this point for 40 years, she gets expelled to the the Soviet Union. Uh, but it's even targeting American-born uh, citizens. So one of the expelled uh, leaders of uh, the IWW is is Bill Haywood, who is an American citizen. He's born in the United States, uh, but he, he winds up dying in the Soviet Union because the United States uh, stripped his citizenship and expelled him from the country. So the leadership of radicalism, left radicalism in the United States is, is decapitated effectively. Now, this is um, one means by which the Democratic Party, you know, really prevented working class movements from gaining a political foothold that would be to the Democratic Party's detriment. Sure. Um, also, at this time, you're seeing um, an increase in the requirements for um, getting on the ballot, you know, as a party that isn't the Democrats or Republicans. Um, Seth Ackerman writes in Jacobin about this. Uh, over the three decades following U.S. entry into World War I, as working class and socialist parties burgeoned throughout the industrialized world, American elites chose to deal with the problem by radically restricting access to the ballot, in addition to the violence we've mentioned. Um, in state after state, petition requirements and filing deadlines were tightened in various forms of routine legal harassment unknown in the rest of the democratic world became the norm. And so this is their way of, you know, keeping Debs and his ilk off the ballot. And in the decades to come, the Communist Party. Right. 
Yeah, you, you'll often hear the phrase the solid self. Uh, you know, its origins date back much deeper historically than this, but, you know, this is a moment where they really solidify the solid self. Because uh, it's not just Jim Crow preventing African Americans from voting, it's these voter restrictions that prevent really anyone who's poor from voting in the right. South. So the voter, you know, people who actually can vote in the South is a very, very narrow subset of the population, mm-hmm. which allows the Democrats who are the Southern Democrats in power basically to stay in power for as long as they want to be in office. It's, they're one party states. It's a one part they're one party states as long as you There's um actually a good um bit about this uh the in this article, he writes, uh, when the Florida legislator found socialists and communists advancing at the polls, it responded in 1931 by banning any party from the ballot unless it had won 30% of the vote <laughs> in two consecutive elections. When the Republican Party failed to meet that test, the state immediately lowered the threshold. <laughs> so even these yeah. one-party states saw room enough for a second party, as long as it wasn't the socialist. Sure. Yeah, you know they they could co- they could collaborate with the Republicans. They you know they're part of the legitimate you know structure of uh, of government. But you know anything outside of that is just just too far. Uh, the point I want to make, so we're going to be talking about you know the FDR administration a little bit, yeah. was just because of Jim Crow and because of these voter restrictions in the solid South, Southern Democrats had outsized power in the Democratic mm-hmm. Party. They had the seniority for the top posts. Uh, they had control of significant patronage that they could dispense at their will. Um, and they could compel FDR to do things that they wanted uh, outside of kind of democratic processes. Yeah. And just closer to home and before we move on to FDR, uh, New York had something like five elected socialists in its state legislature at the time. And these were purged in either 1920 or 1921 under flimsy pretenses. They kicked them out of the state legislature. Yeah. Um, now – FDR, he is remembered historically as, you know, sort of a champion of workers' rights. You know, his New Deal is looked back on fondly because of what has come since as a peak in worker power in the U.S. And what we're going to say today is that, in large part, that's not because of FDR. And in many ways, he works against workers. Yeah. Now, just because the Wagner Act passed under his you know, under his tenure doesn't mean that he's responsible for it. (laughs) Now, FDR, as you mentioned, is beholden to this southern block of Democrats. And so one of the first major pieces of legislation he passes is called the National Industrial Recovery Act, NIRA. And one of its uh, measures is that it includes a minimum wage in certain industries. And the industries that were excluded were agricultural industries, industries and sectors where you could expect to find African-Americans working. Yes. Also, domestic laborers were excluded, again, for the same reason. It was a way of saying black workers without putting black workers in the logs. That would be against the 14th Amendment. Yeah. And in areas where black workers were entitled to these new minimum wages, they were often fired en masse, you know, so as to, you know, not give them things that they... People viewed them as not deserving. Um, And another aspect of the NIRA is it, for the first time in U.S. history, establishes a a legal right to unionize. It creates this – it says legally workers can unionize. They can collectively bargain. But practically, this isn't enforced And in many states, including states with Democratic governors, what happens to workers who try to bargain for their rights, who, you know, go on strike, is that the National Guard gets called in on them. Mm -hmm. And the 30s would become, I think, the most violent decade in our labor history. I I think that that's maybe fair to say. I don't know. We could probably compare the the blood of, like, the 1880s to the 1930s and see the scales about equal. But, you know, it's certainly a very violent decade. And it's interesting, you know, just to underscore your point, how after the Wagner Act, labor unrest becomes more violent. Mm -hmm. And it's not that the laborers are more violent. It's that the government's more violent. It's that the state is attacking organization Mm -hmm. itself. Just to give an example of this, in the Little Steel Strike of uh, 1937 or so, um, it's, you know, U.S. Steel has agreed to allow unions in its, you know, factories, but the smaller steel companies, Little Steel, 
have said, no, thank you. Yeah. And um, workers go on strike effectively for the right to, you know, union representation and recognition of their unions. And th these strikes um, are beat down violently. In, in Chicago, there's something called the Memorial Day Massacre, which do you, do you know the death toll off? It, it was 10 workers killed in, in Chicago and, and, and I can't dozens remember, wounded. I can't remember if it was a picket line or a demonstration, but the point is, <laughs> you know, the police were there uh, and they're, they're full murdering best. Yeah. And um, FDR's response to this after, you know, unions rightly called on him to say, isn't this a violation of the law you passed is to say a pox on both your houses. Yeah. And he effectively blames both sides for the violence that oh, comes out. Right. Yeah. It's, it's both sides is from FDR. You know, he, he these liberals generally in this period kind of see themselves as uh, one of three estates in the United States. There's labor, there's capital, and there's the state. Mm -hmm. And the, in the ideal form, these these three separate estates will collaborate together uh, to affect social harmony. You know, to ensure that profits are reasonable but not too high, that wages, again, are reasonable but not too high, the economy is stable, with the state acting as kind of like the umpire, calling balls and strikes between uh, capital and labor. In practice, you know, we know whose side the state is on. Now, as you might imagine, FDR and Democrats during this time did not have the full-throated support of workers. There was active desire for an alternative. Yeah. Um, the figure cited here is that something like 20% of the U U.S. in a poll, I, Gallup or whatever polling institute was around at the time, said that they would vote for a labor party if one such party existed. Mm -hmm. And there was an active third party at this time in American history. It was the Communist Party. And for reasons both inside and outside of its control, it failed to meet this pivotal moment with the success it needed. The Communist Party was at taking its orders directly from Moscow. It was a Soviet party. It had been formed in the aftermath of the Russian Revolution, and it grew to be larger than the Socialist Party. It was mm -hmm. the largest working class party at this time. And, you know, it, it did some work unionizing the South, more of that cross-racial solidarity we had talked about yep. in the last segment, uh, particularly among sharecroppers in Alabama. Alabama, yeah. Um, but when it came to electoral politics, the Communist Party was, when it wasn't shut out of the ballot, on flimsier ground, because Joseph Stalin at this time was very concerned about the prospect of war in Europe. Uh, Hitler had risen to power in Germany. And Stalin's main interest was to secure the support of foreign allies such as the U.S. And so the communists are told directly to ingratiate themselves with the holders of power in these industrial nations. Um, and in the U.S., that was the Democratic Party. And there's a really blatant shift in this from earlier rhetoric from the Communist Party, which had denounced everything to its right as fascism, <laughs> to suddenly they are champions of FDR. They, yeah. The popular they, front. Mm -hmm. They would not endorse him for fear of that tainting his image, but they did everything in their power to ensure that he would win re-election in 1936, at yeah. the time when the possibility of a real legitimate third party, working class party was maybe at its highest. And also the year, you know, when the Republican Party was at its absolute weakest, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the party had been utterly discredited by the Depression. Uh, and Hoover's the, the, response. To Hoover's it. response to the Depression was appalling. Uh, corporations themselves were seen as parasites in a way. They really hadn't been since the Gilded Age. You know, their, their public opinion about corporations couldn't have been lower. It was a real moment for uh, a new second party uh, to force the Democrats to become what they always wanted to be, which is Republicans, <laughs> but uh, it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And also at this time, you have the emergence of the CIO, which less radical than the Communist Party, though it had many communists within it. Right. Yeah. yeah some of some of the big strikes in 1934 
uh, that really sort of forced the Democrats' hand to passing the Wagner Act or communist led. You know, after the 1920s or this period of relative dormancy in labor activism, 1934, you see this huge uptick in strikes. They're all communist organized and they really inspire the formation of the CIO to kind of take advantage of the Wagner and Act. And that uptick in strikes and in massive violent strikes would continue for a few years now. Yeah. And the CIO was at the forefront. But when it came time to, you know, should FDR earn their endorsement, they sided with him because they did not want to be left out of the Democratic Party and its control on the levers of power. And, in fact, they took efforts to um, sort of strong-arm the UAW, which was more radical and within the CIO, mm-hmm. to when, they vote, when its members voted against endorsing Roosevelt, the CIO strong-armed them into changing their minds. Mm. Um, And so what you have is that popular front. You know, the working class is, though over its some of its uh, vocal wishes, is united behind FDR. And that really cements the ties between labor leadership and the Democratic Party for decades to come, this era. Yeah. It's funny, though, like moving a little bit forward in history too. like uh, I don't remember how exactly involved FDR was with it, but like the war changed everything. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like a cliche to say, but it really did. One of the things that happened is I think it was the maybe it was the AFL, but some of the unions just came out and said, "Okay, because the war is on, we're not going to do strikes during this time. The no strikes pledge. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, this is a no strikes pledge during the war. And this pledge is often flouted by the actual rank-and-file right. workers. There, there are hundreds of wildcat strikes throughout the country, even as the war is going on, you know, really showing the gap between the rank-and-file and labor leadership. So, so they, the labor does negotiate uh, significant concessions for the no-strike pledge, uh, wages uh, in particular, benefits, things like that. Uh, but a lot of these wildcat strikes are because of ramped up war production. The factories just are less safe than they had mm-hmm. been before. The speed up. The speed. Yeah, there's a speed up to for war production, and you know, mm. what what good are you to the war effort if your your arm is mangled? Yeah. And and the Communist Party was often one of the no strike pledges' biggest enforcers. They had gone right. from being the most radical elements of the working class and of the union movement to being really on its right wing. All an effort to curry favor with FDR, who repaid them by passing the Smith Act. Right. And by what you're going to see is another Democratic-led you know, crackdown on radicals and communists and socialists. You mean Stalin didn't understand Americans' political context at the time? Well. No, He's issuing um, orders? It was a tactical error, really, for the major third party at this time to be taking its orders from Moscow. Oh, sure. Now, FDR is followed up by Harry Truman, who, though he did not sign the bill into law, he would oversee the passage of Taft-Hartley, a bill we've talked about on this show past episodes. Um, Democrats in Congress voted to override his veto. And um, Taft-Hartley, what it did was to rid unions effectively of their more radical elements. Yeah. So, so among its numerous effects, so it banned a lot of common union tactics like secondary boycotts, mm-hmm. um, you know, jurisdictional strikes, uh, the closed shop. Uh, but significantly for our purposes, it forced union leaderships uh, in every major kind of recognized certified union to sign loyalty oaths, saying yeah. they'd never been communists. Mm-hmm. It basically forced a bunch of the parties to drive out any communist organizers they had, and that was a huge blow because. Whatever issues there were with the communists, like, mm-hmm. politically, like, they were really effective organizers during the right. time that they were parts of those parties. Mm-hmm. And the loss of them is something that I don't think a lot of the unions recovered from in an organizing sense. Yeah, they, they got to settle down into nice sort of business unionism and uh, fell asleep at the switch, yeah. essentially. Um, and even after this passes, union leadership, the CIO, the AFL, they back Harry Truman's re-election bid. And if there was ever a time for this alliance between labor leadership and the Democrats to fall apart, this would have been it. But it holds firm. Uh, Truman had, on the campaign trail, said he would repeal Taft-Hartley, 
He didn't. And it remains law of the land to this day. What the, one of the great ironies of Truman, of course, is that he vetoes Taft-Hartley, like mm-hmm. you said, and then passed over his veto. Um, but then he is one of the most aggressive uh, anti-union presidents uh, in a he, long time. He used a lot of the provisions used of a lot Taft-Hartley. Of, and famously in 1950, nationalized American railroads to prevent a strike. It's this fascinating inversion of the old populist demand. <laughs> Clamoring for 50 years, nationalize the railroads for our benefit. Truman does it to crush their union and prevent a strike. It's, um, so that's the first half of the 20th century. Yeah. It... Um, held great promise for the working class, for the American working class and unions and the left more broadly to finally, you know, build something, build power. And in the end, all that is funneled into the Democratic Party, which did not have its interests in mind. Yeah. We'll be back after this break. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm here with Cadeo and Rich. We've been talking about the Democratic Party and unions and the relationship between those things. Um, we had left off this last segment about sort of cementing the bond between Democratic Party and union leadership, if not union members. Yeah. Moving really into the back half of the 20th century. Yeah. So, yeah, after Taft-Hartley, uh, you know, you still see rises in union membership. The United States will reach its peak in union membership. And, that, you know, about 1960, it's about reaches about 30 percent union density. It means 30 percent of the workforce in 1960 is in a union of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um but the role of these unions has shifted drastically since the radical unions of the 1930s were very aggressive, very militant. You're, uh, you're not seeing the massive strikes that right. you saw. Yeah, you don't see massive strikes. You see uh, government arbitration, collective bargaining, you know, kind of shaving around the edges of how much health care and how much wages to pay for and increase, et cetera, et cetera. The role of the actual union rank and file as dictated by a union leadership Democratic Party changes as well, they become kind of the foot soldiers of the Democratic Party. They're the ones who go door knocking for elections. They're the reliable voters. This is the role they play in the Democratic Party. And as long as union density is you know, 30%, union leadership is able to compel you know, some power within the Democratic Party for Limited themselves. Power, Limited power. Limited power, you know, to be sure, and, but it's there. And it's, the influence is... Largely held by union leadership, as absolutely, you yeah. It is you know they get the ear with um, elected officials, right? It's George Meany and Walter Reuter. It's not uh, you know Joe Smith at U.S. Steel in Pittsburgh who you know have any say in what things are going on. Mm-hmm. But union density would decline, and with it, the Democratic Party, in some ways, had to change its tactics, and in some ways, chose of its own volition to be less of a party of unions. Yeah. Part of the shift was the the rise of the, uh, I believe the term came to be known as yuppie, the young professional. And the Democrats are looking at that and saying, we want them as our base. We see them as the future. And it starts to become the shift away from whatever they were before. But this real focus on the idea of meritocracy and on we want the people who work the hardest, we want the people who are the best to be part of our party. And they... There's a lot of feeling within the Democratic Party, I think, even nowadays that like like there's a shift towards the idea of meritocracy and like higher education and all of this stuff, which is all well and good in theory. But in practice, what it ends up doing is shutting out unions. I mean, especially during the Carter era. Um, I have a quote here from a book called Listen, Liberal, Whatever Happened to the Party of the People by Thomas Frank. I really feel like there should be quotes around party of the people. If you've been listening to this episode, they've never been the party of the people. Yeah. But uh, this is talking about Carter and some of the people in his administration. Carter turned out to be a sort of archetype, the first in a series of passionless democratic technocrats. That's the term I was looking for, technocracy, focused on the mechanics of ruling more than – or being in power than actually, you know, affecting – Delivering goods to people. That working people – 
that working people felt the brunt of Carter's policies is, was no coincidence. This was not a group for whom uh, his administration felt a great deal of sympathy. In a 1981 interview, looking back at the administration's deeds, Carter advisor Alfred Kahn, an economist, had this to say about the fights over deregulation and inflation. I'd love the Teamsters, quote, I'd love the Teamsters to be worse off. I'd love the automobile workers to be worse off. You may say that's inhumane. I'm putting it rather broadly. I want, to, I want to eliminate a situation in which certain protected workers and industries insulated from competition can uh, increase their wages much more rapidly than the average without regard to their merit or what a free market would do and so exploit other workers. This is a Democrat, remember, and what he was objecting to was the way unions supposedly allowed workers to prosper without regard to their merit. There's a view we shall hear again as we proceed in the book. There's like a level of disgust there. It's always mm-hmm. struck me in democratic leadership. Like, you know, workers are D-class A. They're not really of our yeah. our social circle. and We don't really want to associate them. We're just kind of giving them power out of convenience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as soon as we can do away with them, the more the better. Yeah, there comes this idea, as much as candidates later on, like Clinton and even Obama, I think, are guilty of this. Like, the Democrats who do really well are able to use very populist language to sure. talk like their people, like of the people, but in both cases, their their policies never reflect that. Oh yeah, I remember I remember two thousand eight very well. You know, Obama was a master of it. Well, yeah. earlier even um, after Carter came Reagan, and Democrats are shut out of the White House for twelve years. And some of the most and, hostile, like openly hostile to unions and workers right, periods. In right. The we um, want to clarify: this show has been about Democrats, but. We don't mean to suggest that they are worse than Republicans. They aren't, but they pose as something better than they are. Yeah. Oh, I'm just going to go ahead and say in my personal view, neither of them are good. Right. And there's no reason to say, oh, like, play one or the other. Mm-hmm. This idea – There's. I think it was a Tunisian uh, ruler who said – the American uh, government is a one-party system, but in typical American extravagance, they have two of them. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great quote. Yeah. Um, now, Bill Clinton would, in his presidency, cut welfare. He would pass NAFTA over the wishes of the labor movement. Yep. He did a lot of things that fell hardest on working class and in particular on the African-American population. But he rose to power in 1992 Campaigning on inequality yeah. was the hot issue of the day, as it is now. And here's what Bill Clinton talked about on the campaign trail. Middle-class Americans now worked harder for less, he would say. 1% of America's people at the top of the totem pole now have more wealth than the bottom 90%. That wouldn't be out of place in a Bernie Sanders stump speech. Oh, no. But Bill Clinton is not, you know, did not bring Bernie Sanders' policies into fruition. Yeah. and. Despite his pose, he was another Democrat who had the working class as part of their coalition but didn't deliver for them. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is that the, the Democrats somewhere between the like 70s and now get really en- uh, enamored of the idea of the free market. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been living they- in the free market for quite a long time now. And I assure as many of our listeners are aware, and it certainly is – we in this room are aware the free market has screwed more pe- way more people than it's ever helped. Uh, I feel pretty free, so I don't know what you're talking <laughs> yeah, about. Yeah, I today, feel though. pretty free. I can go of, buy any chicken sandwich I want. After I feel this, pretty this free recording. of money. I feel pretty free of <laughs> yeah. like anything that I need. Right? Yeah. Um, it's just this idea. There's there's two ideas. There's the free market will solve everything, which it won't. We've seen <laughs> that. And the other is like another like very central part of neoliberalism, which is like individualism and the idea of meritocracy, like that the the best people, it should be an aristocracy in the literal meaning of the word, the best people should be ahead of society. The the, the assumptions of the New Deal coalition, the the kind of Keynesian managing of the business cycle falls apart in the 70s, and the Democrats don't have an answer. They could have looked to their left and found some really great answers to uh, the economic breakdowns of the 70s, but instead they looked to the right and found you know, neoliberalism and the Republican Party. And this is very much a conscious decision. They specifically reject the New Deal coalition, and the talking points of the day are we can't use the solutions of the 30s to solve the yeah. problems of the 80s. And what emerges is the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Commission, led by Bill Clinton. Cursed acronym. Who, yeah. yeah shifted the party <laughs> deliberately to the right. It would be Bill Clinton who talked about ending the era of big government. And he would do things that 
I think it's fair to say Republicans would be excoriated for that he was able to uh, triangulate is the term right. he used. Yeah, NAFTA was a Republican negotiation that he just finished off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You might say that – oh, God, this is terrible. You might say that uh, the DLC we're still paying for, huh? Yeah. Video game jokes. I get it. I'm, I'm too old to get it. <laughs> it's a bad joke, to be fair. It's really bad. Much like every word that I can think of that DLC stands for. Mm-hmm. It's, my joke is as terrible as the things it's about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this uh, conversation is getting a little off the rails. And um, looking at the time, we're not going to be able to discuss everybody's favorite subject of the 2016 election. Um, for this week on Punching Out, we're going to have to stop short of that. Um, no. I'm Ryan. I'm Rich. And I've been Kadejo. This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.